Welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today on the podcast, we have special guest, Dr. Timothy Tennant, president of Asbury Theological Seminary and professor of world Christianity. He's the author of several books, including two of which that I have found particularly helpful in my studies, Theology in the Context of World Christianity and For the Body, Recovering a Theology of Gender, Sexuality, and the Human Body, both by Zondervan. Dr. Tennant has pastored churches in Georgia and New England, and after 15 years as president of Asbury Seminary, he is returning to the classroom at the end of this school year. Dr. Tennant, it is an absolute honor to talk with you this afternoon. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well, Kevin, and thank you for the honor to be here. Great to be part of your podcast. Good to have you. And as I was telling you before, I've had uh, I've had a number of uh, of your employees. Is it appropriate to call them your employees? Uh, I've had a number of your faculty on the podcast before. I uh, a couple of years ago, I did a series, kind of a, a big sweep through the uh, the New Testament, mm. and had Fred Long, Ruth Ann Reese, Craig Keener, um, Ben Witherington had just. A whole host of uh, you know the some of the people that I had in the biblical studies program, absolute delight and uh, grateful to keep in touch with them still pretty regularly. Wonderful, it's a great group. Great yeah, group. Dr. Tennant, you are um, you're there in Wilmore, right across the street from Asbury University, where the events of last year uh, transpired. Right around this time, about a year ago, I think it was uh, maybe about three weeks ago, uh, back in February, early February, twenty twenty three. Um, one of the things I want to talk with you about today was maybe some of your initial impressions about what you saw and what you heard, and then also maybe letting us uh, see what has changed, what has transpired since then, uh, in a year later. So walk us through that, you know, that initial, that first week of February last year, what was your initial reaction when you heard that the singing in Hughes Chapel was continuing? Did you suspect at that moment that something special was happening, or did that happen a couple days later? Yeah, great question. Uh, it was actually a, a sort of providential, you know, February 8th, I wasn't actually, I might not sit at my desk. I was actually that day working from my window desk, which is just over here, and I was actually, that just particular view right now, I'm looking at his auditorium from where I'm sitting right now. So where I, where I worked that day, in case I want to stand up while I work, I was looking out on his auditorium, and so at the end of chapel that day, shortly after, I looked up, because I had forgotten even what time it was and when the chapel started or stopped over there, but I saw a young man running across, running his legs off across the lawn, mm -hmm. which I noticed, that's strange, and he ran across the, the street, and to my shock, he burst into my office. Uh, my secretary stopped him, and he announced, there's a revival at oh. So I oh. heard it. The, the day of, okay. Oh, yeah, within minutes of, yeah. I heard it was a revival at the university. So um, that's how I heard about it. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know about any singing or people staying or not staying. That was something that was, so I, at some point when I had a break, I walked over there, mm -hmm. walked in, you know, he's a tour to see what was happening. There was a lot of students there and more gathering by the minute. Um, who were there to, uh, what eventually became, you know, obviously packed out and eventually engulfed the next 16 days of my life, day and night. But at the time, I didn't think it was anything more than just uh, something great had happened that day in chapel. And it was going to probably all be over with by the time supper was there. I, you know, I just didn't think of anything beyond that at the moment. The one until Sunday, which I was back over there, um, I, I guess I've been there several times, but Sunday was a day when I realized, no, this is not something, this, this is going to be something that will be remembered for a long time. So 
it took me probably um, three or four days to fully comprehend what was happening in Wilmore, Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. And funny, too, that uh, that the student decided, of all people, right, he's going to rush right across the street into your office. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. My my friend Tom Lyons, whom I interviewed last year around this time to get his perspective because he was there on the ground uh, in in Wilmore and in the surrounding areas, he gave me some insights on to you know, kind of what what it was like there. He said that it was that night, or or maybe early the next morning, after that chapel service had gone on for twenty four hours. He said that he he remembers getting a text that says revival has come back to Asbury. And in the moment, you're like those wee hour, you know, those you know, dark morning hours when you're staring at your phone and your eyes are adjusting. He remembers reading it and saying, "Okay, cool," and then didn't, you know, didn't think anything more about it. Um, what was it? May, may I ask? What was it on on that Sunday that made you realize, other than the you know exceptional duration of the chapel service, what was it that made you realize there really is something special? going on here it, was it some kind of palpable sense walk us through kind of what you were thinking there i think there was two two things that had their own kind of track one was just the the presence in the room uh as you probably know there was no uh projection of words on the screen there was no technology involved it was by, by modern standards it was extremely like low tech event mm -hmm. and so you had a voice sense of the peace of god in the room uh, a lot of quiet worshiping, people weeping at the altar. You had a real powerful sense of the presence of God. So that was one part of it. The other part, and it was just kind of providential, when I actually showed up at the church on Sunday, was in the back of, of the of Hughes was a little circle of colleagues that I've known for years who were all there in 1970, oh, you know, as yeah. students or as faculty across the street. So I was sitting there and I realized, obviously, these are people who had been here in 1970, which also was in February, and they were able to find perspective from their point of view. And so we sat there for an hour kind of talking about ourselves about how they were interpreting what was going on in light of what they experienced in 1970. So it was that conversation I realized um, this, this was something that they too acknowledged was something authentic from God. And I think that was special. And I think one of the downsides of the media side, this was definitely a social media driven kind of movement. But I do think that one of the downsides of the social media side was that basically it was showing people like worshiping in a big room mm -hmm. and all the YouTube videos on what basically worshiping what and we didn't allow them to take pictures of the altar. That was one of the principles we had, which was good. But what was really happening was at the altar. And that was never shown on social media. It wasn't part of the kind of things people looked at and, and repasted and all of that. And so I think in some ways, um, it was, unless you went to the altar, you wouldn't have really gotten the impact of what was happening during those days. Yeah, yeah. I I remember the the first I heard of it was through social media. And I think it was, uh, I think it was my friend Joy Vaughn, who is now teaching your testament, uh, over there, also at, at Asbury Seminary alumnus. And for those uh, listening to the podcast, uh, thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, Asbury University and Asbury Seminary are two separate institutions. Uh, Joy Vaughn, I've interviewed before uh, with some of her work. She she commented that um, that you know it, there was you know singing and, and, and worship continuing. Uh, and then it was lost in stone. 
Austin Stone, a professor of Old Testament there at Asbury Seminary, who commented on that sense of peace. That was something that was corroborated by every other person that I could talk with or saw them comment on. Dr. Tennant, you, you mentioned a, a group of colleagues who were there for the 1970 revival. Uh, would you mind commenting a little bit about the what y'all talked about? Was there a similar sense of peace back then? Maybe what, what were some other characteristics uh, of that revival and were those similar to what happened last year? Kind of for those who are less familiar with the history of Asbury and particularly the 1970 revival, could you walk us through a little bit of that, please? Yeah, we were actually talking about the, um, you know, the commonalities of revival in history and how 1970 and and there were others besides 1970, but uh, 2023 that that seem to have similar marks. For example, a strong sense of uh, repentance of deep repentance, a desperation for prayer, not casual prayer, but desperate prayer. Um, and we've also come in on how the prayer requests were quite different from what we were used to in 1970. That, that was a big one of the big takeaways was that you know, what people come forward and pray for uh, was quite different. But the actual, like the structure of the awakening, would it be a deep repentance, worship, prayer, scripture reading, which was the what Jonathan Edwards did, you know, in Northampton. If you go back into 18th century and look at that, those revival, the early days of the Great Awakening, they they followed what well, we we followed what they did. You know, you have scripture reading, you have prayer, you have repentance, you have worship, and you just cycle that all throughout the day. So in some ways, it was very similar to what went on in 1970. It also was similar in that people went out from from uh, from Hughes and eventually around the world. That also was similar. Um, we did have a funny moment because at, at one moment, having this very conversation, someone walked in with, I think, about eight boxes of pizza and put them on the table for the students. And Steve Siemens, who's one of the ones in the circle, turned to me and said, let me tell you, we didn't get pizza with our revival in <laughs> He says, Gen Z does, uh, does revival with pizza. It was a light moment. They, they, obviously, the culture changed. The, the cell phones were different. There were no cell phones in 1970. The social media part of it, the pizza and all that. But the core of it was still the same as revivals throughout history. Repentance, deep prayer, confessional prayer, worship, and reading the word of God. Yeah. One one paragraph from your reflections on it, uh, which I think were around Valentine's Day last year that I linked to um, in my episodes that I did last year as well. This paragraph stood out to me. You said several people have commented on some of the differences between these sacred days and the more well-known outpouring, which took place in February of 1970. A lot has been said about the impact of social media in telling the story or about the focus on worship. However, a deeper look at this outpouring reveals that it has the same elements, which are found in any authentic revival. And it's actually the elements that you just enumerated for us here. People repenting of their sins, people being filled with the Holy Spirit, men and women finding reconciliation with God and their neighbor, people capturing a renewed love for Jesus, the gospel and the Holy Scriptures. All of the above has been happening here day after day. Dr. Tennant, that, uh, that might actually kind of lead us into one of the next things I wanted to ask you about. In the moment, how might a Christian discern 
whether what they're experiencing is a genuine move of God's spirit, like what many, uh, I think, justifiably said about last year's events, or you know, were they just caught up in you know, some kind of emotionalism or something along those lines? How, how, how might we be able to more carefully discern that it is actually God's spirit at work within us? That's a good question. I think, um, you know, it's one thing to recognize the presence of God's spirit. Another thing to recognize uh, the lasting fruits of that. I think there's somehow, somehow another kind of a different kind of question. But in terms of the actual, uh, those 16 days walking into, uh, we eventually had five or six places where people were worshiping. Um, you know, I go back to Romans 8, 16, uh, where his spirit, witness to our spirit, I think that Christians who are in the presence of the Holy Spirit um, can discern that, I and mean, especially mature leaders who have seen things that were put on or things that were being manufactured and all that. We all we all had that. Mm. And so I, when I was went over there and what I experienced at the altar in all of our sites here, I was, I was part of this all 16 days, uh, was a real uh, sense in my spirit that God was doing something. Mm. I also was struck by the the phrase that was actually used during the revival, which I thought was really special, was the phrase radical humility. And I do think that uh, one of the points I have, a perspective I have that's not shared because it wouldn't be known, is I was actually in the room with the leaders as they made many decisions about food and about how long and you know, where we will go and the Gen Z and where would they be in his auditorium. I mean, all these decisions were made uh, with a group of people, and I had the privilege of being in that space. Um, and what I want to say about that was that we, even though we didn't agree on a lot of things, we had very serious conversations about a lot of things. But there was a real, genuine sense by every single person in the room they wanted to do what was right. There, there was no sense of trying to oh, let's use this to promote Asbury. Let's use this to create a beggar. Bigger, like with enrollment funnel for next fall, or none of that. Uh, this is going to be like a free advertising thing. It was none of that kind of thing. It was really focused on, you know, we all have our different views about it, but it was real clearly the, the honesty, the authenticity, the genuine sense of listening to one another was beautiful. <clears throat> to me, it was the most beautiful part of it, was that actually yeah. for me, you know, watching the whole thing unfold from that side. And so it was, uh, to me, one of the signs that this was a move of God. Yeah. Looking from an outsider's perspective, I I can see that there were no obvious instances of any kind of self-promotion or self-aggrandizement in, um, in, in all the reporting from the trusted sources that I had uh, who were there in Wilmore. Uh, so I, I can... I, I can corroborate that as well. This is actually one thing that I tell a lot of my Bible classes that if if you pay close attention to you know the miracles that Jesus performed versus the miracles that Satan wanted him to perform in the temptations there, um, the things that the devil wanted Jesus to do were you know, self-serving or self-aggrandizing miracles. Mm -hmm. you know, you're hungry. you know, help yourself. Your, you know, your God's special son, he will catch you if you jump off of the temple, right? All those are self-serving and self-aggrandizing when instead, you know, Jesus's miracles were in service of others. And they, you know, they demonstrated his, his, you know, 
his status as Messiah, right? But they were all in service of others. Uh, there's a humility there to it that mm. I think is akin to what we're talking about. Yeah, that 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 really does make a lot of sense. Um, <clears throat> as we've uh, as we've been calling this a revival or an outpouring, you actually preferred the term awakening, as you mentioned in your blog post that I've linked to. Um, why you know, is is there is there maybe some some preference for one or the other? It, how much you you differentiate revival, outpouring, awakening? Are these all synonymous terms? Or help us kind of walk through some of that language. And, and does it really matter? Yeah, I think well, first words do matter. But I do think that the um, the real crux of it is not so much to determine the right word, but to determine whether or not there are two kind of categories we're talking about, two like categorical things, whatever you call them. Mm. And the distinction is important. I think the first level would be uh, an outpouring or awakening. There's something at that level, which is a, a stirring of repentance and a confession to God, which people turns their hearts towards him and provides a deeper appreciation for God's larger redemptive purposes. I mean, that kind of work of God can happen in a profound way and go for 16 days and disappear. And we don't complain about it. We don't say, well, I wish I'd done more. No, our hearts return to him. Mm -hmm. I mean, every night there are people who came forward because I was at the altar who said to me, um, you know, I've grown up in the church all my life, but I've never really uh, received Christ as my Lord and Savior. I, I've never, I've never accepted Christ. And would you help me do that? You know, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> I'll take it any day of the week. I mean, People lined up two miles, you know, down the street in order to get into our spaces was a beautiful thing. And so I love that about it. And so I think whatever you call it, there's something to be said for where God uh, manifests himself in a particular way, which does turn hearts toward himself and awaken all of us to his purposes. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. There's another category, I think, is the long-term fruit that actually changes a culture or changes a generation or changes a nation. Mm -hmm. That to me is another category. So David Thomas, who uh, was kind of the shepherd for the whole awakening, wonderful brother, works for our New Room Conference. His PhD is in revivals. That's what he that's what he studied. And he has commented to me that, you know, there's no one agreement on like the terms, like revival versus awakening versus outpouring. I think what the agreement is, there's a difference between God manifesting himself in a particular time and space, which has its own value. And kind of what we hope for is something that would uh, spread and eventually shake a nation or shake a people or shake a generation like Gen Z. Uh, whatever you call that, that's a different kind of thing. And so obviously we pray, we thank God for either one, but we pray for the latter. And so I think that's why there was some blogs, including mine, trying to say, we're not claiming that, you know, America's going to be shaken to the ground. We're just saying something happened in Wilmore. <laughs> and so uh, we later, when we decided to shut it down in, on the 16th or bring it to a close, it was partly because of this point. We said, you know, it's one thing, I remember saying to the group, you know, is it really a good strategy to tell hungry spiritual people all over the United States, indeed, the more of the world, if you're spiritually hungry, make your way to Wilmore, Kentucky. You know, is that really a good strategy? And what point do we turn from a come and see to a go and tell and send people out so that every altar is a Wilmore, Kentucky? Every altar is a place where God meets them because that's our doctrine of, of God. 
So I think though that's really where I think it's important that what is something when God does something, our tenants want to go there and experience it. At some point it must be exported out where it can never become a revival or a lasting fruit bearing movement in a generation. So that can't happen just through social media. So that's part of our thinking that those distinctions are important, whatever you call them. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. Yeah, that really does. I, I, I like that too, that it, it is, it is a lasting fruit that we're ultimately seeking for you. You also mentioned in the, in the blog post that we've alluded to a couple of times now that, you know, Everyone loves these mountaintop experiences. I grew up going to church all my life. Um, grew up going to church camp, you know, for several years, and I, I do have what could be genuinely, almost literally, mountaintop experiences. A particular place um, in um, <clears throat> in Fall Creek Falls State Park, Tennessee, where you know, we we stood on on a on a precipice that overlooked a canyon singing a song called light the fire and mm. you know, one of the lines says you know, your spirit moves right through me and we felt a wind rushing around us which you know for anyone who has any kind of familiarity with you know some biblical languages might know that the words wind and spirit are often linked uh, both in hebrew and in greek and you know that that wind blew around us and through us the whole time until we finished until the last amen was said and it immediately died down and i've had that mountaintop experience and then you know at the end of camp you go back home and a few weeks later you're back in school and you know just struggling with you know, with all the all the difficulties that come with school and being around people who don't appreciate the same kinds of things that you appreciate, it is that long term fruit you know, that uh, that really bears witness to to what has happened. Walk us through uh, some of the fruit that you've seen in Wilmore, or you know uh, that that is born out of last year's uh, last year's outpouring. What what has what have you seen that has continued on today as a, on on the basis of that? Yeah, I also yeah I think I, it's important to, to those two are listening to know that the because um, you often think that these things happen out of out of the blue. Um, it wasn't true. So what happened was there was a student here at the seminary who was a very faithful a man from from uh, Malaysia who came here and studied and when he was about to graduate the lord told him to stay and pray for pray for a revival pray for awakening he came to my office one day and said he felt called to do this and um and i told him it was wonderful i prayed for him i told him that he had my our blessing and so he would just walk around the community um for months and months and then she will said what is this man doing walking around what who is he and so eventually put well, I know it sounds funny, but he put these placards like you see, like in the movies and all, like a placard, like a sandwich board people, you know. He yeah. had this come Holy Spirit, praying for revival, awakening. He had a bunch of these that he rotated around. And um, he he walked the streets. He came to my house every single afternoon. He'd come down there and he'd lay his pray, hands and pray for our home and pray for me. And um, he did this for... Uh, for a year and a half, every day, all of campus pray, and then did that spawn prayer prayer circles, people praying for revival. So a lot happened uh, in the year prior to 
February 8, 2020, 23, mm -hmm. we don't realize. In some ways, that's what's continued is, uh, is prayer. And I think deep in prayer circles. Um, and eventually, David Thomas, who I mentioned was a very big part of kind of speaking to the community throughout the whole awakening period and, and uh, Estes and Hughes and all our spaces. Um, we eventually, or pretty quickly after the time that, uh, of the awakening, we decided to shift his job description so he would just be full-time follow-up. In other words, he's focused on this point as his job, you might say. This is what he does. Yeah. So he's had several initiatives which bring college students together, connect uh, deeply prayerful groups with other groups that don't even know that others are praying. And it's been really good to see um, there was a general movement of God among Gen Z because they are desperate. They are definitely feeling the press. I don't know if you know the book, The Fourth Turning is Here by Neil Howe. But the, the reality of that book, which is now a New York Times bestseller, does reflect the fact that there is a sense of, um, of crisis and a sense of impending doom that comes in this culture, in this generation, and they feel like you know, they're, they're desperate for God. And so in that sense, I think I'm really glad it's not in the media anymore. It's not like you know people pouring here. I think it's actually much better that it's moving out quietly. I've traveled around the world, spoken about this. I've been to Australia. I've been to Cuba. I've been to Singapore. I've been to Bangkok all in the last year uh, since the outpouring. And I was surprised everywhere we went, we want to talk about it, ask about it, even at a very high-end academic conference in Australia. I was lecturing on a very, very narrow band of theology <laughs> with a group of people that are experts in something pretty narrow in terms of interface of Islamic and Christian thought. Uh, but one guy in the Q&A period, after all these questions, very detailed questions, asked, tell us about the Asbury Revival. Wow. <laughs> I mean, this happened all over the world. People in Cuba <laughs> asked about it. And so I realized uh, that this had become something that had really spread and inspired people around the world. Um, Azusa Pacific and Beeson, there's so many schools on the country that were touched for days. And I think that uh, that's a fruit that is not really widely talked about in the media, but was something that was really important the kind of prayerfulness that's come out of this movement. Yeah. I, I, I was fortunate enough to be asked by you know, various people around who knew that I was a graduate of Asbury Seminary, my, my thoughts on it. Um, I'm not sure if you're at, very familiar with Churches of Christ, my my denominational background. Um, it, it, historically, we are you know somewhat cessationist. We're we're also um, we also have congregational autonomy, and so there's you know every congregation will probably have some similar elements, but we'll also have some very different elements as well. There's a very wide spectrum you know that is represented represented within our within our churches, and um, even amongst you know, some members that I, I thought might might be a little uneasy to hear about you know revival and, and all this kind of stuff, uh, they were they they seemed appropriately impressed or, or pleased maybe to hear about what was going on. They might have heard you know maybe some maybe they had some negative connotations with the word revival, uh, which you even uh, mentioned in your in your blog that you know it's. It's not about fire and brimstone preaching or anything like that because that wasn't what was happening. It was this. It was this genuine sense of peace and and that's that, that was nice to be able to share 
share with others. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of this uh, sort of this quiet movement that that you've seen since then. This um, these prayer groups. Um, what what kinds of things have you uh, you've seen? Maybe these groups praying for. How have some of those prayers been answered? Um, walk us through that just a little bit as we begin to wind down our time together today. Yes, thanks, uh, Kevin. I think one of the things that struck me about the event was very early on, after the first week, the uh, auditorium became, uh, you know, first 10 rows and 20 rows, then actually the entire facility was reserved for people 24 years old and younger. And so the people that were 25 or older came to across the street and filled up our gymnasium, our chapels, et cetera, everything. So we were actually, and I don't think this has ever been done before, but just by the way it worked out, we had a generational difference in where people were actually seated and present at a revival or mm -hmm. at awakening. So the result was we were able to talk to the prayer teams and get feedback on what people were, because we had to do this as part of our preparation for our, our prayer teams. What are people coming forward to be prayed for? And it was interesting because the, the, the Gen Z group uh, was primarily coming forward with, with um, depression, anxiety, and deliverance from shaming. That wasn't, wasn't something I really heard a lot about on this side of the street. So I yeah. was experiencing a lot of things, more traditional things you might hear about, but it showed that there was really a difference. And so I think in some ways, the, the movement among Gen Z seems to be addressing those things. Um, that's why I think we should distinguish between the core work of the of the awakening, which was God is new among Gen Z. That's very different from kind of spiritual needs being met in Wilmer, Kentucky, by people who came, which were like any church when someone comes forward, people have needs and they're, they're varied. But yeah. I do think that the, the awakening happened among a particular generation, and that generation is being met with God's answer to depression, anxiety, and, and shaming through social media. Those are three big things that the church has not really addressed in our, my generation, your generation as much. And so I think in some ways that's one of the fruits of this is these prayer groups are finding God meeting young people on those points in particular yeah. and giving them hope for the future. Dr. Tennant, I, I really appreciate that perspective. I I had heard generally what kinds of things were happening in Hughes Auditorium. I'd heard generally about um, you know, this overwhelming or or maybe you know, noticeable sense of peace that people were experiencing as they're there, heard reports of you know the the prayers for repentance and things along those lines. But those specific things that you mentioned, depression, anxiety, and social media-based shaming, I had not heard of before. It also is just easy to lose sight of the fact that, you know, we hear about the you know, the world descending on Wilmore, Kentucky, which for those of you who are not familiar with Wilmore, Kentucky, Kentucky, it's it's hardly a bustling metropolis. It has yeah. a, a, two stoplights, I believe, okay. and uh, that's that's about it. What, what is the population? It, it's just a couple thousand. Is that right? It's it's more than that, but it's, it can't be more than ten thousand. Yeah. Okay. So it, by no means is it, it a, a major city of any kind. But as the world was descending on uh, on Wilmore, you know, I'm hearing from all of my adult friends who are married and have kids and things like that, but hadn't hadn't heard from a Gen Z perspective what was happening there. So it's a, that's an exceedingly valuable insight 
uh, Dr. Tennant. I really appreciate you sharing that. Dr. Tennant, as, as we wrap up uh, this afternoon, any any final comments or any other things that you that that are helpful for us to know either on what happened last year or maybe how we can continue to uh, to be faithful with that uh, that outpouring of God's spirit that he uh, that he gave uh, last year. Well, thank you, Kevin. It's been an honor to be part of the podcast. You know, just I would say to all of your listeners that there's nothing more important uh, to do than to renounce, especially in Lent, uh, to renounce casual prayers, uh, renounce casual praying, and to encounter uh, desperation praying, uh, praying to God for our nation, for our world, for our, our generation, especially Gen Z, that God would, uh, would do a great work in this generation. So if we, those who heard this, would pick themselves to uh, concerted prayer and to not just like a prayer to start a day or a prayer of a meal, but serious prayer, uh, then I believe that would be the greatest fruit of this conversation. Yeah. Dr. Tennant, thank you for your time, sir. God bless you, Kevin. <laughs>